As we move to uh, continue our worship in uh, the Word this morning, we're going to return to John chapter 12. We took a step away from it last week for Thanksgiving, but we're going to return to John chapter 12 this morning, and so you can find your way there in your Bible. Uh, I should say that next week we will start kind of an Advent series, and so through the month of December we'll be looking at various passages in the Bible uh, that relate to the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. Uh, so this will be kind of a, a, actually John chapter 12 as we close this chapter here is a, is a good marker for the book. Uh, it really is a, the major transition in the book. And so it's fitting that we would kind of end John chapter 12 uh, this morning and then move to talk about his birth and then pick it up in the new year with John chapter 13 with Jesus in the upper room. And so we'll have, a, again, a major division in the book of John uh, that hinges on John chapter 12 here. As you know, Israel was God's chosen nation. You might even say Israel is God's chosen nation. Amos, the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2 says, You only, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, speaking again to the nation of Israel. And as God's chosen nation, Israel was blessed. Paul, the Apostle Paul, recounts the blessings of Israel in Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He says, they had adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He says, to Israel belongs the patriarchs. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 9 there to speak of the greatest blessing that came through the nation of Israel. In verse, in verse 5, Romans 9, verse 5, he says, it was through the Jewish people that Messiah came. The Deliverer came through the nation of Israel. As we know, for all these blessings that Israel had, they rejected their Messiah. They rejected that Deliverer. They even killed their Christ. That being said, the Messiah did not try or did try to convince them of who he was. And this convincing is well demonstrated in the Gospel of John through chapter 12. We have seen this over and over again. Jesus trying to convince the nation of Israel that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Seven chief signs, chief miracles, demonstrate that Jesus was the promised deliverer. These signs were even delivered in a uniquely Jewish way. More or less, Jesus turning the water into wine demonstrated Jesus' power over nature. His healing of the nobleman's son from a distance demonstrated his power over distance or space. The healing of the invalid of 38 years demonstrated his power over time. Feeding the 5,000 demonstrated his power over food. Walking on water demonstrated his power over natural laws. Healing the blind man demonstrated his power over physical laws. Raising Lazarus from the dead demonstrated his power over death. And all of this we have studied over the past year. And alongside these signs, these weren't enough, you have those I am sayings of Jesus. These statements are personal testimonies from Jesus that he is equal with God, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. 
I am the door. I am the shepherd, the good shepherd, excuse me. I am the resurrection and the life. The most telling I am statement comes to us in John chapter 8, verse 58, which, in which Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Yet all of this wasn't enough. They, that is the nation of Israel, refused to accept his call for them to believe. They ignored his warnings, and as a result, they suffered the consequences of their unbelief. God hardened them, and those who were unwilling to believe became unable to believe. As a result, God pronounced a judgment on Israel. Listen to Luke chapter 13, verse 35. Behold, your house, Jesus says, is forsaken. Your house is forsaken. You will not see me at uh, you will not see me until you say, Jesus said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Their house was forsaken. Now in our passage this morning, we find Jesus' final appeal to Israel. And in some way, it's kind of a summary of his entire ministry to the nation of Israel. For three years, Jesus had presented himself to Israel as their Messiah. He proved his claims over and over again. His teaching was unrivaled, and his miracles were unforgettable. Our text this morning records Jesus' final call for the nation, for the house of Israel, to believe and, so do, and in so doing, this morning's passage gives us a clear picture of Jesus' rejection and acceptance as king of Israel. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll read our passage this morning. It's John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. John 12, starting at verse 37. Hear the word of the Lord. Though he had done so many signs, this is of course Jesus, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, or on this account, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. 
What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's our big idea this morning. Four characters sum up the rejection and acceptance of King Jesus. Four characters sum up the rejection and acceptance of King Jesus. Look again at verse 36, 37, excuse me. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. First thing we learn about these unbelievers, which is the first character we'll introduce in this section, the blind unbelievers, is that they rejected the miracles of Jesus. Now, we might have, uh, we might have suspected or expected that these signs would have kind of a, a snowballing effect, that the sign would have elicited faith and that with each accruing miracle, one's faith would grow more fixed. That the sum total of Jesus' miracles would have left unbelief, you might say, in the dust. But that's not the case. Here we learn something about the, the fortitude, the strength of unbelief. It's chilling to learn that unbelief can witness the lame walk, can see the, blight, the blind given sight, even the dead raised, and yet refuse to believe. You might recall the time that Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler, Matthew chapter 19, when the man refused to give up his possessions and to follow Jesus. You remember what Jesus said. He said it's easier for a camel, right, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Having heard that statement, the disciples asked Jesus, well, then who can be saved? How is it possible? And you recall Jesus' response. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Here's the point. Unbelief and belief are entirely fixed by God. Even the greatest of miracles can't, cannot convince men to believe. For man to believe, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, well, God must do a work. He must do a work that would otherwise be impossible. John tells us in verse 38 that this unbelief was predicted and spoke of in Isaiah chapter 53. That's what this quote is here in verse 38. It's a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And John tells us that here this is fulfilled in this day. Now, we know Isaiah chapter 53 is maybe the, the most significant passage in all of old, the whole Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is that passage that, in which we read about the prophecy of Jesus' death. It was predicted there in Isaiah 53 again that Jesus would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be a man of sorrows and, to, and acquainted with grief, that he would bear our grief and carry our sorrows, that he would be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53 5, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. We're very familiar with Isaiah 53. What the prophet does in Isaiah 53.1, the first verse of that chapter quoted here, before making his great prediction about the coming Messiah is to predict, even promise, that Israel won't believe it. 
And he does that with this rhetorical question. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is akin to kind of Habakkuk's When Habakkuk complains to the Lord, you remember God's response to Habakkuk, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. They won't even believe what's coming. Of course, in Habakkuk's case, it was a foreign army coming to crush Israel. In the case of Isaiah, it's that the Messiah would be hung naked on a cross. He would hang cursed on a tree. Who could believe that? John reaches back into the Old Testament and he pulls this out and he places it here and he says, it's fulfilled here that they wouldn't believe. Israel failed to believe the words of Isaiah and they failed to believe the words of Jesus. Therefore, unbelief not only rejects miracles, but it rejects the revelation of God. That's what he's saying here. Isaiah said, who has believed what he heard from us? It's God's revelation that they're rejecting. And what the Jews of Jesus' day heard was God's greatest revelation, the culmination of all revelation, the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. As the book of Hebrews declares, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He did that long ago and many, many times he spoke to us. But in these last days, the author of Hebrews says, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the final declaration of God's word. And yet, God's own people, they shut their ears. They would not hear it. They rejected it. This phrase here, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, I believe in Isaiah's day is likely a reference to God's power to save and to deliver and to give life. Here in John 12, it's likely a reference to the the signs and the miracles that Jesus has done. This is the arm of the Lord. All these signs, all these miracles, and yet they rejected it. And so what John is saying is through the, this Isaiah, the, the, through the prophet Isaiah is that neither miracles nor revelation brought faith in God's people. They were held captive. They were fenced in. They were imprisoned by their unbelief. And if unbelief rejects miracles, if it rejects God's revelation, if it rejects the arm of the Lord, well, then unbelief must accept its consequences. And that's what we read in verses 39 and 40. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, this time Isaiah 6, verse 10, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I, that is Yahweh, would heal them. This is a a chilling reality. And yes, you read it right. God is the subject God is the protagonist. He's the chief character in unbelief. It is God who has blinded and hardened in order, as this text says, that they do not see, that they do not understand, that they do not turn, that they will not recover or be healed. 
This reality leads us to probably the central question or challenge in these verses, namely whether or not John, that is the Gospel of John, the author here, has in mind what we might call a strict determinism. What do I mean by strict determinism? I simply mean, is it God who caused the unbelief? And to that we would say, we would have to say, well, no. God didn't cause the unbelief. Rather, what these passages illustrate is that is the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which we've spoken of time and time again in the Gospel of John. You can't get around it. It's nearly on every page. Understand, this passage is not teaching us that God, by some advanced blinding, blinding and hardening decree, forced damnation upon men. That's not what this passage is teaching. Rather, this passage is teaching that God's sovereignty is able to see God see future judgment, excuse me, to see the future judgment of men brought about by their own stubborn unbelief. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say that God's choice is open and God sees whether or not we'll choose him. That's not what I said. What I said was that God sees the future judgment of men brought about by their own unbelief. Of course, God sees the future redemption as well. It's just not what John is talking about here. He's talking about unbelief. This passage is yet another argument that those who willfully turn away from the gospel do so by their own peril. Notice I said willfully. This announcement or prediction of that fate in advance is simply due to the foreknowledge of God. God is, because of his foreknowledge, able to declare that they will not believe. These people chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice, their own fault, Leon Morris says. The Gospel of John insists, we've, we've talked about this over and over again, it insists that we make a decision regarding Christ. Christ. John issued a clarion call to all of his readers, believe on Jesus and be saved. This is the stated purpose of the book, John 20, verse 31. But these things are written, these signs, these miracles are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This whole book is about belief. It's about making a choice. And yet it's interesting that although it's all about belief and making a choice, I don't know of another gospel that talks about God's sovereignty as much in the midst or in the middle of that choice. In no way is John denying that choice in any way here. What John is stating is that the hand of God was in the consequence of their choice. The classic example for this is Pharaoh. If you think back about Pharaoh in the opening chapters of Exodus, we read how Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses, and in hardening his heart against Moses, he hardened his heart against God. He opposed Moses. It would not let the people of Israel go. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, we read, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron. And again in verse 22, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. We, we, read, we read similar statements throughout 
Exodus 8, 15, 8, 32, 9, 7. Again, Pharaoh hardening his heart. And then finally we read Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to Moses and Aaron. The hardening of Pharaoh came as a result of his own choice. It was the consequences, or it was the consequence of his unbelief. And we see the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility finally in Exodus 9.16, which says this, but for this purpose, God says, I, that is God, for this purpose, I have raised you up. God raised Pharaoh up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's sovereignty demands that his fingerprints are left in the process. They have to be there. Yet the Bible never suggests that, suggests that God forces unbelief. The Bible doesn't teach that. God does not force damnation on anyone. Therefore, what we have in verse 40 are the consequences of unbelief. The consequences of unbelief. On account of their persistent unbelief, God issued a judgment against them. He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, as the text says. And this means they are unable to see. They are unable to understand. They are unable to turn and to be healed. Verse 40 then should be read as, or should be understood as the consequence of unbelief and not as the cause of unbelief. A similar illustration, you have Pharaoh, and then you have the opening chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, Paul does a very similar thing. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This cyclical idea that unbelief, persistent unbelief continues until eventually God hardens the heart and the person has no ability to turn and be saved. That hardening comes as a consequence of that persistent unbelief. And that's what's happening to the nation of Israel. As they persisted in their unbelief, they're finally reaching a a climax here that he's quoting Isaiah 6.10 saying, here it is, the moment of hardening. It's a consequence of their unbelief. Which is why verses like Isaiah 55.6 are so important. Which says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is the clarion call of the Bible. Believe. Don't face these consequences. But while the the word of the Lord is in the room, repent and believe. Trust in God before it's too late. It was too late for Israel. Now before we come to our second character, John gives us a very intriguing statement in verse 41. 
He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw his glory and spoke of him. Well, the verse that John just quoted from, was from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. This was originally spoken during Isaiah's vision of God. You probably recall that. In that vision, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He was surrounded by angels who were praising him. Isaiah even says in verse 5, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a vision like no other in the, in the Scriptures. Isaiah looks upon the Lord. What John reveals to us in kind of a, almost a footnote here in verse 41 is that the one Isaiah saw was who? It was Christ himself. It was Jesus he saw. Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. That is Christ. By implication, John is connecting Jesus to Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the Almighty. The vision of God sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, was none other than a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Lenski notes, Isaiah beheld God's glory before the incarnation, John after. Isaiah beheld it in a heavenly vision, John beheld it in the words and deeds of Jesus, in the person and the character of the God-man on earth. End quote. And so we have John 1.14. You remember where this book began. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have a second character in verses 42 and 43, second character that summarizes the rejection and acceptance of King Jesus, we'll call the second character the silent believers, the silent believers. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These authorities that John calls believers, he calls them believers. That's why we're calling them silent believers. They, they failed to confess Christ. Of course, the Jews as a nation rejected the words of Jesus, but some apparently did believe. In other parts of the book, we read about Nicodemus, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who were of the authorities, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and they did believe in Jesus. So we do have evidence that some did believe. However large this group was of people who believed, they failed to confess. They failed to confess Christ because they feared loss. They feared loss. If they confessed publicly, they'd be put out of the synagogue. That's what it says here. This was a weapon wielded by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to put people out of the synagogue. You remember the man who was blind from birth that Jesus healed? He was put out of the synagogue simply by suggesting that maybe Jesus healed him. You might recall his parents refused to affirm that Jesus healed their son for fear of being put out of the synagogue. They were afraid of this. They had good reason to fear it. The, the synagogue was the, the hub of the community. To be put out of the synagogue meant you were a total outcast. 
You were an outcast in life. You couldn't purchase certain things. And you were an outcast in death as well. You, were, you wouldn't even have a funeral. It wouldn't give you a funeral if you had been excommunicated from the synagogue. John gives us some further insight into the silent belief in verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved human praise more than the praise from God. I'm not sure whether or not these should rightly be called believers, as the Bible doesn't seem to communicate that believers have these kind of characteristics. Whether or not they possessed true saving faith, I don't know. I do know that in every instance, Jesus calls us to vocalize our faith. I do know that. To seek the praises of God over the praises of men. To seek the praises of men is akin to loving the things of this world, which the Bible warns us against. You know, James 4.4, 4, do, you, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John, even in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 15, do, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, he says, the love of the Father is not in him. At best, we might say that those who practice silent belief are teetering on the edge of destruction. These authorities and those of us who might be teetering on the edge of destruction must come to grips with Jesus. Let your silence be broken by these words from Jesus. Matthew 16, 25. For, for whoever would save his life will lose it. For whoever clings to this life will lose this life. But Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Will find it. Just look over at John chapter 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, this is 1226, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. Whose honor are you interested in? The honor or the rewards that men can offer you as these silent believers? Or the honor that God gives, the reward that God gives. Matthew 6:33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, Jesus says, will be added to you. Now we know John wouldn't sum up, Jesus wouldn't sum up the rejection and acceptance of King Jesus without acknowledging true belief. And he does that as well. And so that's the third character that sums up the rejection and acceptance of King Jesus. It's the true believers, the true believers, verses 44 through 46. And these verses do really sum up a number of themes throughout the gospel. The first comes to us in verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Belief in God comes through belief in Jesus. The two are so close that to trust in the one is to trust in the other. This was so obvious that Jesus actually rebukes his apostle Philip or his disciple Philip in chapter 14, which we'll study in a couple weeks, a couple months maybe. Chapter 14, verse 8, 
This is in the upper room. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Goodness, Philip. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? By believing in Jesus, we not only believe in God, but we actually see God, which is what verse 45 says. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Behind Jesus stands God himself. To see, to behold Jesus is to see and to perceive who he really is, who God really is. To see and to behold is faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul illustrates unbelief with a, a veil. Unbelief is a veil, and when we turn to the Lord, the veil over our heart is removed Remember, he uses that illustration from Moses who put a veil over his face. He shielded them. His face, the glory of God was leaving his face, and so he put a veil over it to cover himself. So Paul uses that and kind of brings it to the New Testament and talks about unbelief as a veil. We come to the Lord, that veil is removed. And he says, and we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there was a, a wide gap between the prophet of God and God himself. And that gap was closed with the words of the prophet. That's why the prophet could say, thus saith the Lord. So although the prophet and, and God's words are separate, they kind of come together in that act of prophecy. So the prophet was the messenger of his God. But you see, the gap is closed in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no gap. In the one, we see the other. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. We see God in Jesus Belief in God comes through belief in Jesus Christ. Seeing God comes through seeing Jesus Christ. And deliverance from darkness, verse 46, comes through belief in Jesus Christ. Verse 46 says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We already know that the Gospel of John has a lot to say about Jesus being the light. John 8, 12, and 9, 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Here he says something a little different. I have come into the world as light. By putting it this way, Jesus is portraying himself as the one who drives away the darkness. And this darkness isn't merely the absence of light. It's more than that. It's the evil powers of ignorance, error, falsehood, deception, that's what the darkness is. It's the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places that seeks to, to fill our hearts with impurity, with dishonorable passions, with debased thinking, and to chain us to unbelief. That's what the darkness is here. And for whom does Jesus come to this world to chase away such darkness? 
For whom? For whoever believes. That's what it says. Whoever believes. One commentator wrote, the term whoever is like a blank space into which every believer, each person, is entitled to write his own name. I love that. Put your name in it. Jesus says, I have come into this world as light so that John Doobie, me, you, may not remain in darkness. He came to deliver us from the evil powers of ignorance, of error, of falsehood and deception, to fill our hearts not with impurity, but purity. Not with dishonorable passion, but honorable passion. Not with a debased mind, but with the mind of Christ. And to chain us, not to unbelief, but to belief. Can you write your name in verse 46? This truth that Jesus is the light that provides deliverance from darkness is very important, especially in light of the preceding verses and the strong emphasis that this, these verses have on God's hand or his involvement in unbelief. The mission of Jesus was to save. That was his mission. Jesus came to deliver us from darkness, not to imprison us within the darkness. He's a savior. Jesus, the light came, and his light enters our heart and fills us with faith. This was his mission. And so through verse 46, through verse 47, no, verse 46, that's correct, we have three characters that summarize the rejection and acceptance of King Jesus. The blind unbelievers, the silent believers, and the true believers. And finally, we have this fourth character, which we'll call the judged unbelievers. The judged unbelievers in verses 47 through 50. Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. I do not judge him, excuse me. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, given me a, a direction, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus stresses some of the same points he had just made, just kind of from a different direction. To hear the, the word of Christ is to, to, to not keep or appreciate them. And to not hear or keep or appreciate the words of Christ is to stand in judgment. Yet, Jesus says here, it's not Christ that judges. He didn't come as a judge. This is the third time in the Gospel of John that Jesus has made the similar point. He wants us to understand that this first coming was not a coming in judgment. Again, three times he said it. John 3, 17, he said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He says it very clearly in John 8, 15. I judge no one. 
And then here he says it. And the truth is that the world did not need a judge because it had already been judged. Paul makes the point, Romans 5, when sin entered into the world through Adam, death spread to all men. We're already under judgment. Your aching back, your failing vision, your wrinkled skin, your growing forehead, as my kids like to point out, all of these are testimonies to the judgment. We're under judgment. God didn't need to send a judge because we did that to ourselves. We broke his commandment. We sinned against him. Therefore, what does God's righteous mercy demand? It demands that he send a savior. That's what it demands. He is not fully merciful if he doesn't provide a way for us to receive mercy. And so God, in his infinite wisdom and infinite love, sends someone to crush the head of the serpent. And he doesn't even give us a a hoop to jump through. He doesn't even say, don't eat of the fruit in the center of the garden. He doesn't even say that. All he says, whoever believes, just believe my word and you can have eternal life. That's all you have to do. Whoever believes, write your name in it. Whoever believes. And the words, or I should say yet, the words of that Redeemer are so clear They're so poignant. They're so important that they actually judge, which is what he says in verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Men don't need to make public speeches. They don't need to stand up here or anywhere else and confess their unbelief. They don't need to post YouTube videos denying Christ. All they need to do is reject him. Just not accept the word. And they're under judgment. Which demonstrates, I might say, the immeasurable power of his word. That's how powerful his word is. The word that I have spoken will judge him. The words of Christ are not like my words that fall to the ground. And this afternoon, you'll have no memory of them. They'll be gone. These are not like Christ's words. My words are mere sound. They're heard, they're gone, they're forgotten. Christ's words are the greatest database of eternal substance and reality. The words of Christ are the majestic expression of the eternal will. Eternal. Transcendent truth that has no beginning and no end. It always was and it always will be. He speaks that truth. This means 
that no one can reject his words with impunity. And so they are a judgment. You remember Hebrews 12, verse 25? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is really a reference to God on the top of the mountain, Mount Sinai. The people, you could see God up there. You could see the mountain shaking, the thunder and lightning and the sound. Remember that same passage says, God is a consuming fire. And they rejected that God. And Hebrews says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape, we, if we reject him who warns from heaven. That's the word of Christ. He warns from heaven. It's anecdotal, but my son asked me, does God speak to people today? I said, no, he doesn't, sorry. But yes, he has. This is how God has spoken to us. These are the words from heaven. And these are the words that judge because they're internal. And so, yes, God does speak to us. Open your Bible and listen. God is speaking to us from heaven in the person of Christ. And this is because he is one with the Father and he speaks for the Father. Verse 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say as the Father has told me. Notice the final words that that Jesus offers to the nation of Israel. These are the very last words given to them. These are the words that you drop the mic after. That's it. We're done. The the Father's commandment is not some harsh judgment. It's It's not a harsh restriction. It's a call for salvation. His commandment is eternal life. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say that God's commandment leads to eternal life. He doesn't say that, although the NIV says that, which is wrong. That's not what the text says. He says it is eternal life. God's commandment isn't some hard rule to follow. I mean, what does 1 John 5, 3 says, say? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not what? Burdensome. The Bible actually says that. The Bible says his commands are not burdensome. They're eternal life. They're full of joy. His command is a direction, a rule given in love. It's an act of holy love. It's an offer to experience inestimable joy through this most simplest request ever believe. That's it. The greatest joy that you could ever know by just believing. In every facet of your life, believe. Keep believing. That's all Jesus asked the house of Israel to do. That's it. 
friends, that's all Jesus has asked us to do. In every moment, yes, for salvation, but in your walk of faith, to believe. Believe in God's promises. He will not forsake you. He will not forget you. He will never fail to be your protector, to be your defender, to, to give you comfort, to heal you. And I know you can testify to that because you've seen it in your life, amen? Poet said, listen to me. Though I speak sober things, listen through me. Though we're men of lips unclean, I speak truly. What you only think you've heard, everything, everything, everything hangs on a word. What's that word? It's the word of Christ. Will the word bring you eternal life or will these words bring you judgment? Look back over to verse 44 as we close. Jesus cried out. Jesus said these words, not in whispers. Jesus cried out. He yelled them loudly for everyone to hear, for the whole nation to hear, for us to hear. He cried out in a loud voice when he spoke these words. He wants us to hear this message. This message is offered to all without exception. These words are like the sound of a jubilee trumpet offering redemption to the whole world. Four characters sum up the rejection and the acceptance of Jesus. I don't know where you find yourself in these four characters. Maybe you're all four at times. Maybe there's one that resonates with you. The silent believers, the true believers, the blind unbelievers, the judged unbelievers. Wherever you're at, everything hangs on the word of Christ. Amen?